0: saw what true spirituality looks like to the naked eye when jesus washed the feet of the disciples this week in the next 10 verses chapter 13 21 through 30 we're going to see the flip side of fellowship what fellowship does not look like it's not just religion and rituals and good works and so we're going to see kind of the uh antithesis of what we saw last week let's pray that we'll be especially teachable we've uh, fellowshiped and and prayed and and worshiped but now we're going to feed on god's word so uh, what i'm wanting to do here's my secret plan Uh, when we're done in 45 minutes i want you to be able to read verses 21 through 30 in your bible or on your phone or have you carry your bible nowadays and it's all good you know they didn't have books until about uh, the 2nd century A.D. So the New Testament books, Gospel of John, was not written in a book. It was written on a scroll. And I got a feeling, any time you move from one technology to another, the older generation kind of resents it. So I think in the 2nd century, as they started putting the New Testament from scrolls into book codex, it was called form, uh, I'm sure the older generation didn't like the fact they took it off the scroll and put it in a book. And now... Uh, many of us carry it on our phone. It's, it's all good. But my goal this morning is when we're done in 44 minutes, uh, is that you'll be able to read verses 21 through 30 in your Bible and essentially know what it means. And if you know what it means, you can believe it. And if you believe it, you can apply it. And if you believe it and apply it, you've got a real shot. If you're a believer, at uh, doing good, good works, which is the essence of true spirituality. So that's, that's our goal. So let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word. Uh, we also want to pray for those who protect and defend us. Uh, I'm looking at Ann, whose husband is a, a police officer in Tulsa, an increasingly difficult place to be a police officer. Uh, Bill serves and protects uh, us up there. We think of our National Guard. We think of our firefighters. Uh, we think of our active military. So we're thankful for all those people. We pray for them regularly here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray you give us uh, pure hearts and and clear heads as we approach this very poignant and uh, kind of surprising portion of your word. We're so thankful that the Lord Jesus uh, gave us this teaching. It's been inscripturated inspired and written down by the apostle john and now we've got an english translation we can access and we're thankful that you do speak to us through your word and we pray that we'd be listening today so give us teachable hearts and and let all of us who are believers see how these principles relate directly to us where we are today Uh, we want to pray for those who love us enough to serve us and protect us and defend us and whether it be a police officer or firefighter locally, or a National Guardsman or woman, uh, or an active military uh, member, uh, Scott Austin, or uh, David Moore, uh, or uh, uh, Matt Sanford, or so many others that we think about. Um, Danielle Copas, we pray your blessing and encouragement for them. We pray especially for those who are believers, That are serving in the military. can be an especially challenging place to live out the faith. I pray you strengthen them to be consistent in their convictions and also consistently excellence in their execution of the mission. We pray for those who strategize and lead especially, uh, that they would uh, be able to see the big picture and make wise choices before our forces are engaged. And we pray that you give us uh, righteous victory as we go. Uh, We thank you for each one who's here, all over the building, and ask the blessing of your word and the power of your spirit to uh, fill us and direct us because we gathered together together here on the Lord's Day, the the day of the resurrection, to celebrate our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Okay, to help uh, warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, I've got uh, slightly humorous cartoons That are especially uh, related to youth group members, their parents, and John and Amanda as our youth group leaders. Okay. So Clay and Henry, you ready? Okay. Uh, This is an algebra teacher explaining to one of his students why it's important to learn math. And the teacher says it's important to learn math because someday you might accidentally buy a phone without a computer or without a calculator. I knew what I meant. This is uh, a teenage driver explaining to his mother why he can text and drive. It's not a problem. Uh, he says to mom, who's looking at his phone, it's okay if I text behind the wheel, I have an app that drives the car. So don't worry. Now, this is uh, Taber and Riley, and uh, I won't tell you who said what, but one said to the other, I start every song by counting one, two, three, four because it reminds me of math. Math depresses me, and it, that helps me to sing the blues. And then finally, uh, and you've got to really read this carefully, uh, young man like Tabor about to leave for college, and Dad looks at him and says, uh, Your mother and I have saved enough money to send you to any college you like. Would you prefer train or bus? So, Hayden, can you kind of relate to that? You know, they'll, they'll send you up there, and after that, you know, you're on, you're on your own. All right, this upper room discourse is dynamite. No place else, Dennis, in the whole Bible does Jesus go into this kind of detail about what uh, the the victorious Christian life, true biblical spirituality, looks like. Uh, He talks about and gives us the pattern for fellowship when he washes the disciples' feet. Uh, Beginning next week, we'll look at principles for fellowship according to Jesus that revolve around one central concept, Carol, abiding in Christ. The unbeliever trusts in Christ when he or she recognizes and responds from the heart to the one who can save him or her because I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. Jesus can and I want him to because he died for my sins and rose again. Abiding in Christ is the engine of Lindley's spiritual life in DFW, Savannah's spiritual life as a public school teacher in Duncan, Oklahoma, and Dale Corbin out in the oil field seven days a week. Uh, Abiding in Christ is when the believer recognizes and responds from the heart to the one who has saved him or her. So it's all about relationship. Jesus doesn't, Kyleen give uh, 613 do's and don'ts in uh, the upper room discourse. He basically says, abide in me, love me and other people. And then everything else is specifics. We'll figure it out. It's all about a relationship of love, respect, adoration, and submission to the lordship of the one who saved us and then in chapter 17 jesus prays for fellowship and basically he says i want believers to recognize and respond to their inherent unity with one another today we say across denominational boundaries we're brothers and sisters to all those who have trusted jesus christ regardless of their culture their color or their denomination now talking about the pattern for fellowship. Last week in verses 1 through 20, we saw what true biblical spirituality looks like. A fellowship with the Lord is manifested by willing personal servanthood. You know how you spell servanthood? G-I-V-I-N-G. It's just it's about giving, living a giving life as opposed to just a getting life. Uh, fellowship with the Lord is expressed by willing personal servanthood giving to others in the name of following the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this week, verses 21 through 30, we're going to see what true biblical spirituality, Wanda, does not look like. It doesn't just look like somebody who goes to church meetings and religious activities and does religious things and submits to rituals and even says nice things about Jesus. Uh, Three facts about the flip side of fellowship is what we're going to see in these verses. And basically, they be summarized this way. Number one, fact one, unbelievers, people who have not really trusted Christ aren't going to go to heaven when they die, can be involved in Christian circles, in Christian churches, in Christian campus organizations, in Christian social uh, movements. Uh, that can happen. And we're thinking of Judas, of course, uh, as our example here. Uh, the second uh, fact about the flip side of fellowship, verses 22 through 26, tells us, that Christians often don't know, can't tell, who among them are really believers. Because salvation and spirituality is internal, it's not just external. But the good news is, the third fact is, the Lord does know. It's not going to be faked out by any Judas or anybody else for that matter. Let's look at verse 22. The first fact about the flip side of uh, fellowship uh unbelievers can be visibly, actively involved in Christian circles. Look at verse 21. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. When Jesus had said this, we'll go back and show you what this is in a moment, he became troubled in spirit. I mean, he's really upset. We'll show you how upset in a minute. And, te- and testified and said to the 12 guys in the upper room, Judas and the other 11, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you, one of all y'all, we would say, right? Now, uh, we've already seen in general, Jesus knows what's going to happen before it happens. He knows it's no surprise to him that Judas defects and sells him down the river and was never really a believer at all. Go back to chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus is washing their feet not just for hygiene purposes, but theological purposes. And when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. That's the slave's job. You're not the slave. You're the Lord. And Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, you have no fellowship with me. This is all about true spirituality, fellowship with God. We've got to let Jesus wash our feet as we walk in the world, even though we've taken the bath of salvation. So Peter said, you know what? If washing my feet is that important, give me a bath. Two aspirin are good, give me ten of them. It's got to be five times as good. And Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. He who has taken a bath, the bath of salvation, you guys have just taken a public bath before the Passover banquet, you don't need another bath, you need just to wash your feet now because you've walked from the bath to the banquet. And for us as Christians, we walk around the world and we're not perfect. We all stumble in many ways, but we're already completely clean as far as the bath of salvation is concerned. And then look at the last part of verse 10. He says, and you, and that's plural in the original, all y'all are clean with one exception, but not all of you. Verse 11 tells you what that means. He knew the one, Judas Iscariot, who was betraying him for that reason. He said, not all y'all, with that one exception, are clean. Now drop down to verse 17. After washing their feet as an example, the ultimate manifestation of true biblical spirituality, Caitlin, He washes their feet, and that means you should give and serve other people in the name of Jesus. Um, As a believer, he says, if you know these things, you're going to be blessed with the blessings of fellowship and the joy that comes from fellowship if you do them. This isn't a spectator sport. You can't do it on an absentee basis. And then he says, as I'm talking about this pattern of fellowship, I'm not speaking to all of you. Only believers can have fellowship with God. I know the ones I've chosen. But it's also true that one of you have rejected me, and Psalm 41 said that uh, somebody who is my friend will turn against me. Verse 19, from now on I'm telling you this before Judas actually does the dirty deed to be confirmed in your faith. So go back to verse 21. Go back to verse 21. When Jesus had said this about one of them uh, isn't really part of the set, he's troubled. And he says very specifically, now let me say this so you can't miss it, okay, Blaine? One of you guys in this room is going to sell me down the river, going to stab me in the back. That's what he's saying. Now the word for troubled there, at least in my translation, verse 21 says, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled, is a Greek verb in the original that John wrote under inspiration, Tarasso, and it appears several times in the Gospel of John for uh, talking about Jesus. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, you've got the supernatural resuscitation of Lazarus, okay? And look what happens here as Jesus comes four days after Lazarus has died, and the sisters are very upset he wasn't there sooner. He had not been answering his phone or sending them text messages or anything, so they're really bummed out and, and grieving. And he is, too, dealing with the reality of death. Uh, and we read, uh, I've got 33, let's put some context. Let's go back to verse 34. And actually, you know what? 33. I want 33. Yeah, let's go 33 and 34. When Jesus therefore saw her, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, weeping, grieving her brother's death, uh, the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Same verb as we just read in chapter 13. Deeply moved in his, his spirit, in his innermost being, and was troubled. And he said, uh, Where have you laid him, and they said, "Come and see." And Jesus wept. So he's very upset dealing with the reality of death, knowing his death just a few months away. Look at chapter twelve, verse twenty-seven. This is pretty. This is pretty cool. Here, it's all great, of course. But uh, look at John twelve twenty-seven. Jesus, anticipating his crucifixion, says, uh, "Now my soul has become troubled." Same word. Real emotional pain and anguish. And, and yet, what should I say? Father, save me from this. I, I don't want to do this. Uh, now, again, he's going to go to similar territory in Gethsemane, isn't he? But he says, hey, this is this is the reason I've come into the world. I was born wrapped up like a dead man because I was going to die for the sins of the world. So he just says, Father, glorify your name. I'm going to submit to your will. Even though if there were a plan B, we'd got a plan B. But there's no plan B. Apart from his salva- uh, sacrifice, there's no salvation for any of us. Then a voice came out of heaven, and this is the voice of God the Father. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by, this is in a public setting, and heard it were saying that it had thundered. If God would just speak, then I'd believe. Well, God just spoke, and most of them say oh, that must have been Thunder. Because God doesn't speak like that. Well, God actually spoke there and they're explaining it away. And Carl Sagan's not even there, you know. Others are saying an angel has spoken to him. It's clearly the voice of God. Jesus entered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world is about to be cast out. Satan's going to have his chain shortened considerably. And I, if I'm lifted up, crucifixion from the earth will draw all men to myself but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die the crowd then answered him and said said we have heard out of the law the old testament scripture that the christ is to remain forever he's supposed to set up his kingdom and rule forever so how can you say the son of man must be lifted up and taken away who is this son of man watch this verse 35 jesus said to them for a little while longer to that group, just a few months, the light is among you, capital L, talking about him, the light, Jesus. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so you may become sons of light. What's Jesus saying Are the terms of becoming sons of light? Believing in the light. What must I do to be saved? To Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So go back to 13, verse 21. This is real emotional anguish. On on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus is burdened about the fact that his friend has stabbed him in the back. Have you ever had anybody let you down? I've had people stab me in the back and then talk to others about what a bad guy I am because I bled all over their knife. (laughs) I mean, it's it's crazy, man. And it hurts. Uh, Even if you see it coming, it hurts. So... Unbelievers can be, and who's doing this? Who's who's betraying Jesus? Judas, who's been walking around with him, Eric, for three years, who's seen all the miracles. People today say, boy, if I get to see a miracle, I'd believe. Really? Not necessarily. God can speak, and people can say thunder. Judas can see Jesus do just about everything he did and opt out, not want it. Flip side fact number two. Christians often don't know, can't tell who among them are really believers. Let's read verse 22 uh through 26 uh so jesus says one of you guys going to betray me one of you guys in this room and the disciples obviously say well it's obviously got to be judas because we've you know we've read matthew mark luke and john we know what happens they're living it and they look around at each other at a loss to know of which one he's speaking and judas doesn't come to mind he's not obvious to them They're, they're thinking who among us would do this uh, now, they were reclining on, uh, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom there at the Last Supper. We'll show you what that looks like in a minute. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's the guy writing this gospel, John. He always refers to himself in the third person like that. So Simon Peter, who always talks first you know, and asks questions later, so speak, gestured to him from across the table to John and said, uh, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Find out from Jesus who's, who the bad guy is, and I'll take care of him. And then John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said, Lord, who is it? And everybody else, I don't think, you know, in the movies, I guess, everybody's watching this. I think everybody else is talking, and joining the Passover meal, shocked by what Jesus said, wondering about it. And John just kind of leaned back, and not in a whisper, but in a personal conversation nobody else is really listening to, it except for Peter's straining, can't hear it. Which one of us is it, you know? <laughs> who are you talking about? And Jesus answered and said, it's the one for whom I shall dip the morsel, the, the sop, the special little piece of the Passover lamb that the host would give to the most honored guest at the climax of the dinner. Uh, it's the one uh, for whom I'll dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it in a few minutes after that, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Look back at verse 22. To me, this is kind of a surprising thing, but every time I read it, Jesus says, one of you guys will betray me. And the guys are looking around at each other like, who's it, who's it going to be? Um, you know, if you play Little League Baseball or Pee Wee League Baseball or lower levels of baseball, 12 is about the number of players you have on a team, 12 or 15, somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a big enough group. You know each other by name. You know each other pretty well, but you don't know everything about everybody. You can't have 12 best friends. Uh, these guys have been working together for three years, and it's not obvious to them who the betrayer is. And that's the point, okay? Uh, Christians often don't know, can't tell who among them are really, really believers. Now, how's that possible? How's that possible after three years? See, it's possible because the key dynamics of salvation and spirituality are invisible and spiritual, and unbelievers can be associated with Christian circles and be an elder, be a deacon, teach Sunday school, organize things, sing in the choir, do all kinds of stuff. You can be ordained and be clergy. And not really be believers. So, because the reality is invisible, God knows, but we don't always, we can't always tell. So, it's obvious here, they, they're not sure who it is. Uh, and somebody said that churches and Christian circles uh, have believers and make believers. And then Dr. Brad McCoy said, you know what, that's not enough. Because I think most churches, this church has always had real believers and probably some make-believers, and then some seekers. And I'm thinking about Bob Shalit as a seeker. I'm going to say more about him at the conclusion. But Bob never pretended to be a believer in Yeshua, the Jewish name for Jesus. But he just kind of liked hanging around. It was good, clean fun. And he would just tell you that he wasn't a believer in Jesus, but uh, he did believe in loving his fellow man. And as far as he could tell, we weren't dangerous. He had noticed there are no Methodist suicide bombers. And we're not even Methodists, but we're close enough. And we're, we're, you know, we may sing funny songs, but we're not dangerous, you know. And and uh, for Bob, it took community before he would consider conversion. But I, I suppose just about every church, because we don't have a, you know, we can't run you through a uh, the kind of thing at the airport they've got now and and look at your heart and know if you're a believer or not. Uh, typically, when I interact with people, if I'm not, if I'm trying to figure out where they're coming from, I, I'll just say. Uh, if you say, are you a Christian? You know, walking up to a Christian church in Duncan, Oklahoma, walking up to anybody in Duncan, Oklahoma, and say, hey, hey, you, come here. Are you a Christian? I mean, what are they going to say? Now, if you say that in New York City, you're probably in trouble. It's a very controversial question, you know, and you're going to get all kinds of answers. But we're still on the buckle of the Bible belt. Most people are going to go, well, what do you think I am? You know, a Martian? Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. They may have a more generic definition of Christian. But what I like to just ask people is, if I don't know them, is tell me about your spiritual background. Tell me about your church background. Tell me about your religious background. You know, it's so funny. This is my 11th year of teaching part-time at Cameron University. And the head of the communication department, 11 years ago, told me to tell the students, when you give your four formal speeches in the class, you should dress up, you know, like you're going to church. And at that point, I said, Tony, you haven't seen the way people dress for church lately, have you? And I thought, plus, in my back of my mind, I thought, that's probably unconstitutional. Well, we have a new pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, who's running the the communications department now, who's a nice guy, you know, for an atheist, but uh <laughs> but uh, uh he didn't want references to church in the syllabi. So we have to say uh dress like you're going to an important job interview. Okay. So uh but the point is uh you, you can't always tell where people are coming from, and we don't have a Geiger counter you walk through that can let us read your heart. Uh, I like to think, uh, and on the other hand, I don't feel like I've got to, like, uh, browbeat somebody or buttonhole them when I first meet them. You know, with, with Bob Shalit, uh, you know, we kn- we knew Bob for, what, 10 or 15 years before he came to faith. And I, I, there were several different times people would kind of chide me, like, do you realize Bob isn't a believer? Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah. I know him a lot better than you do. Of course I know he's not a believer. But, you know, but I just played, yeah, not really, yeah, he's not a believer, yeah. Uh, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm hoping God will do something about it. But really, technically, I can't do anything. You know, and after he came to faith, he told me personally, he said, I'm really glad you didn't buttonhole me or browbeat me or kind of force me, cram this thing down my throat, because I would have been adios. So I, I, I like to think this is an, I, I, I feel like the grace of God and the power of the gospel is so powerful uh, I don't have to have people jumping through my hoops the first time I meet them or twenty-five times after I've met them. Uh, to me, let's just make this a Bible-saturated, gospel-saturated environment. Let's let the real believers live it out, and I think that thinking seekers of truth, enabled by God's grace, will see it and believe it. You know, and that's you know, Bob. We've got. I can think of several other uh, examples. But they've upgraded to better churches, so I'm not going to refer to them, but uh, people who came to faith here because we kind of did that approach as opposed to 17 verses of Just As I Am. Now, I got saved in a church uh, back row of revival before they started playing Just As I Am. And on the 18th verse of Just As I Am, the preacher convinced me I had to walk the aisle because God wanted me to if I was really a believer. So, of course, I walked the aisle because he knew a lot more about it than I did. Uh, But I was saved by faith before I walked the aisle. Okay? Look at verse 23 and following. We're saying that Christians often don't know, can't tell. Uh, Their disciples are a loss. They have it's, Judas is not jumping out at them. They, they don't know. Uh, but uh, it says they're reclining uh, at dinner, and the one who's reclining next to Jesus interacts with them. Now, now, this is the, by the way, okay, Eric, that's not a photograph. Okay, that's Da Vinci's Last Supper, and we always like to make fun of that because, really, it looked more like that. Than that. They didn't sit at, you know, a, a whatever, 17th century long uh, banquet table. They would have lied on their side, laid on their side, uh, around a triclinium, it's called, uh, like that. And uh, I can remember, <laughs> I think I got the order wrong last time, but a guy named, uh, I forget his name, Clarence Wagner in Jerusalem, the first time I went there, I went to a seminar after the tour's over. And he told us that uh, based on Jewish tradition, at a big banquet like this, uh, the guest of honor, the host, I should say, the guy who's in charge, would sit right there. His best friend would sit there to protect him or lay right there. The person they were honoring was there. And then you'd kind of seat the rest of them around the table in order of preference or priority. And so one theory that a lot of people hold is Simon Peter, Jesus says he's here. And of course, the Well, let's do it that way. Jesus is there, assuming all that's true. And the scripture doesn't say it. This is my assumption, okay? And he says, one of you guys will betray me. So Peter, and John's just thinking, because that's what he does. He thinks. Peter wants action. So Peter, who's here, lowest priority member of the party, but directly across from John, kind of gets John's attention, uh, and John lays back on Jesus and says, which one is it? And he basically says, watch this. It's the guy I'm going to give the sop to. It's the one I'm going to give the special badge of honor to. So that's one theory. And again, I'm not going to pound the pulpit on that, but it makes a lot of sense and it definitely makes the logistics very possible. Now, let's talk about this morsel, my translation says. Verse 26, the guy who's going to betray me is the one to whom I'm going to dip the morsel and, and give it to him. Now this morsel is a piece, and watch this. This morsel is a piece of lamb meat. The Passover lamb was a type for the Christ. You know, the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost and the lintel, and you're in the house. The death angel passed over, right, Michelle? That's what's called Passover, and that represented Jesus. And so we got Jesus presiding over the Passover meal. That's all about Him, and by tradition, uh, the host would honor the guest of honor by giving him this last final morsel, kind of the best bite of the the banquet, and he says that's what's going to happen. So you've got a piece of the Passover lamb, and the Passover lamb stands for who? It stands for Jesus, right? Wrapped in flour, dipped in the uh, bitter herbs, and so you've got the Passover lamb handing a piece of the Passover lamb to Judas. And I always wondered, what's going on there exactly? Okay. Is, he, is Jesus taunting him? No, Jesus wouldn't do that. But a friend of mine in Washington State, Dr. Keith Krell, great pastor, great teacher, says this, quote, Bible.org if you want to find the exact quote. In one of the greatest acts of grace recorded in Scripture, Jesus offers Judas one last chance. This is Keith's view, and I think it's right. Jesus offers Judas a piece of the sacrificial lamb, a piece of the Passover lamb. Get this, Jesus, the lamb of God, to be sacrificed the next day to take away the sins of the world, is personally offering himself and his salvation to Judas, and he's saying, Judas, it's not too late. Is that a killer quote? Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. It means God saved. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't die so we could have a new religion. He died so we could have a new relationship. Uh, If Keith's right, Judas is just about to allow his heart to harden so much it will never come back and even be savable anymore. But Jesus at the last moment is saying, hey, here I am. You can have this if you want it. Sounds like Jesus coming into Jerusalem in Matthew 23 for the final week. He goes, Jerusalem, how, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to call you like a mother hen calls her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. There's a real sense in which, uh, um, you know, God is uh, involved in the human condition. It's not just a robotic uh, working out of some kind of computer program. Uh, so what have we seen? Flip side of salvation, number one, unbelievers, people who aren't going to go to heaven when they die because they haven't trusted Christ, can be visibly, actively involved in all kinds of Christian circles, including Christian circles, uh, churches, I should say, or in this case, Judas walking around with the guys for three years, and they think he's just one of the guys, right? Uh, Christians often don't know, can't tell. The third and final fact, God does know. The Lord does know who and who is not true believer and regardless of their level of uh, human virtue and religious activity all unbelievers are going to be ultimately dismissed into the night of sin and death look at verse 27 after the morsel after this was given and to uh, Judas and he ate the physical thing but he didn't trust in Christ Satan then entered into him I'm telling you Satan can Motivates you and demons can motivate you, but can't make you do anything. But I see this as the last opportunity. Judas has had so much light and has now categorically, definitively, finally rejected it, uh, having already set up the mechanism for the betrayal. Boom, he's past the point of spiritual no return, and boom, Satan empowers him. And Jesus looks at him and says, Just go ahead and get it over with. You know, what you do, do quickly. Now, watch this. The guy, the other eleven guys are still totally clueless. Now, no, now, no one of the other eleven of, of the eleven believing apostles, of those reclining at the table, knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to Judas. But some were just assuming because Judas was the treasurer, he had the money box that Jesus was basically saying to him, "Hey, buy the things we have need of for the feast, because you've got the Passover, then the seven-day feast of unleavened bread." Or else that he was saying, go give something to the poor, because it was kind of traditional to give alms for the poor uh, in connection with Passover. Verse 30. So after immediately, so after receiving the morsel with his mouth, but not his heart, he went out immediately, and it was what? It was night. Uh, Nobody in the room is suspecting Judas. Now, you might think, well, Jesus said the one I give to, and he gave it to him, so everybody saw it you know what, John and Peter must have got distracted or maybe he veiled their eyes so they couldn't see. You know, Jesus walks with three disciples on the road to Emmaus on Easter Day and he kind of veils their eyes so they can't really see who he is till the end of the trip, right? So maybe something like that happened, but they're still clueless. None of them know. And in fact, they're coming up with good reasons why he's being told to leave. He must going to be buying stuff for next week or maybe he's going to give stuff to the poor or whatever it is, that kind of thing. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately it was night. It was night isn't just a time indicator. It's a theological commentary on the condition of Judas in his heart. He has embraced the dark side, and he's leaving the light, capital L, Jesus, to go into the world. He's rejecting Jesus and going to set the last final details up with the bad guys so he can betray Jesus. So let's close here. I think Judas is the classic example of a guy who had a ton of religion and not an ounce of salvation. It's possible to have a ton of religion and not an ounce of salvation. Uh, The first year we went to the interior of Mexico, 1991, with a large group of Americans, maybe 40 of us, three of us from TBF, first morning briefing we had before we went out there, somebody said, well, how are we going to evangelize? This is a culture that's saturated with religion. And he said, you know, the existing religion here has done great pre-evangelism. They all believe in God. They believe in Jesus. They believe the Bible. They believe they're sinners. But they think they've got to earn salvation by their good works on the installment plan. And what we've got to tell them is Jesus isn't just a helper that helps you be a good religious person. He's the Savior who saves sinners. And no matter how religious you are how good you are, nobody's good enough. They don't need the salvation by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Uh, by the way, I think I already touched on this, but what would you say to a person today? And this is one thing you hear. Well, you know, the Bible, everybody in the Bible sees miracles every five minutes. And, of course, they believe, plus they were very gullible back then. We're scientific 21st century people. But, if you know, if I could have been back with Jesus and walked around and just seen a couple of miracles, I definitely would have believed. Uh, what do you say to that person? I'd say, well, Judas didn't. <laughs> Uh, In fact, most of the people who saw the miracles of Jesus didn't become regenerate believers. So I think miracles can catalyze faith in a believing heart, but it doesn't necessarily cause anything. It can just harden a heart. Uh, General principle. uh, The good, good works Jesus exampled for us. Is that a word? Just verbalize that one. uh, In uh, verses 1 through 20, washing their feet. Uh, the good, good works that Savannah is supposed to do as a teacher and as a wife and as a disciple of that uh, David Demerson supposed to do and that Hayden's supposed to do, even in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's an easy to do it up there. Uh, are the fruit, they're the effect of salvation, you might say by being religious. Uh, I think Jesus was a very religious, patriotic, Jewish boy. Man, right? If that wasn't good enough. So the good, good works that we're taught, we're wanting in the Christian life are important in washing people's feet and being a giver. Very important it's the visible manifestation of true uh, uh, biblical spirituality. But all that's the effect. It's God working through us. Uh, it's not the cause of our salvation. But here's the specific uh, idea. Involvement in churchianity, including performing good works, teaching Sunday school, being on the nursery rotation, being a deacon, being an elder, going to church conferences, getting ordained, being going to seminary, preaching from pulpit, leading a prayer meeting, uh, being a leader at Campus Crusade at OU or whatever it is, uh, doesn't make a Christian. It doesn't make a person a Christian. An example I like to use is going to church doesn't make a person a Christian any more than going to a garage makes a person a car. Going into a kitchen makes you a cook. Going into a pro shop makes you a golfer. Going into a pool makes you a swimmer. What happens if they throw you in a pool and you can't swim? Not a good thing. So, you know, um, we're we're not just in the behavior modification. We're not just in a draw crowd, go to church services, give the people what they want, crank up the music, everybody have a good time, and I went to church so I'm a Christian. Judas went to all the services, saw all the miracles, heard all the teaching, and I think he strictly thought Jesus was going to be a political leader to overthrow the Romans, and once that obviously wasn't going to happen. He's out of there. But even then, at the last minute, Jesus says, I'm the Passover lamb. The the wrath of God can pass over you if you'll take me. I want you to have me. And Jesus says, I'll eat it because it'd be embarrassing not to, but I'm not going to. Uh, Don't trust in your goodness or your churchianity to make you right before God. No one's so bad they can't have salvation. No one's so good they don't need it. Right? And to me, TBF is a great laboratory for us to actually do this experiment and see how it works out, because in Bob's case, he's a shining example. But, you know, we're a group of believers, and I can't see anybody's heart. So, But if I say, what's your background? And they talk about their religiosity and their church stuff. Well, have you ever come into faith in Jesus? And if they can explain it, cool. If they can't, uh, let's think about it. And if they haven't done it, let's talk about it. But uh, uh, TBF is a neat place for us to see how this works because we don't have a lot of the hoops uh, many churches have nowadays. Well-intended, uh, the hoops, but they're not necessarily necessary. I don't think Jesus had a bunch of stuff you had to sign or cards to, to fill out before he would take you seriously. Uh, I'll end with this one. Uh, so even even though um, servanthood is the ultimate manifestation of true biblical spirituality, but you can be a servant and not even be saved, you know, Uh, not everybody in Christian circles is a believer but watch this some unbelievers especially today because it's all about pragmatism uh, existentialism some unbelievers will seek community before they consider conversion and I am about to to close and I'll close in three minutes but I've told this story before but when I first got here our our, our auditorium was where the youth uh, room is now and one of the first Sundays I was full time here Late 88, first of 89, uh, this very distinguished-looking guy with a beautiful head of white hair. I lust over people with good good hair. You know, I just don't have it. You know? Every day for me is a bad hair day, I'm just telling you. But thorn in the flesh, right? But anyway, Bob's sitting there, and you know, I, I taught whatever I taught, and I shared the gospel, and he's kind of smiling and nodding, and he's on the very front row. And as soon as we finish in prayer, he walks up, got a nice, pleasant look on his face. What's he going to say? He's going to say the new preacher nice to meet you, good job, appreciate it. And he goes, young man, I think you have insulted all the Buddhists, Muslims, and Hindus of the world by your insistence that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I went, huh? I said, are you a deacon or an elder here? Nobody told me that on the way in. So I was expecting a compliment, and I kind of got a slap down, but I kind of thought, well, at least he understood where I'm coming from. So that's cool, you know. But I thought this will be one and done. He ain't coming back. The next week he was there, you know. And he was up and down the first couple of years. He would he would come to the potlucks with great regularity, and come to the fun stuff, and come to church too some of the time. Um, went up and down, and then uh, you know, uh, as he, he kind of had some crises in life, and God was getting in his in his heart and life, he started coming very consistently. But still, would just tell you he had from a Jewish background. He wasn't sure what he believed, but he loved God and loved other people, and he thought we did too, so that's fine. And like I said, a lot of people thought we should pull him over and force him to make a decision on our deadline, and some of us didn't think we should do that. And then we are at a men's breakfast one Friday morning when we had a weekly men's breakfast at the restaurant downtown, and I started my little presentation after we ate. And he's very dramatic, so he waited until we got about 10 minutes into the presentation, and he said, uh, Brad, could I interrupt your presentation for a moment? And I went, yeah, well, you know, it's pretty good stuff, but yeah, okay. What, what do you got? And he goes, gentlemen, last night I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Yeah, it's not like Moses talking, you know. So, and this is before texting, so, I, you know, we cried and we hugged and we kind of did whatever we did, and then he and I stayed and talked for an hour. Then I got to the church, and I just started calling all the older TBFers. I, 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 called, I remember I called Pam... And I called, uh, you know, all these other people who who I knew would want to know. Okay. So, uh, you know what? Uh, That's just the way it works sometimes. Uh, I keep promising I'm going to quit, and I haven't quit yet. But I'm going to quit in like a minute. But here's the thing. Uh, We haven't done this lately. But uh, when we we have a, a, a printed, physical, you can touch it with your hands, church directory, uh, Patty's in charge of getting the names and the numbers. But several times, and, I, and we really kind of do for one. So we, I, Several people have told us that, so we're kind of working on it. But several different times in the back of that thing I would put, this is a phone directory. It is not necessarily the Lamb's Book of Life. Because I had, like, somebody say, well, you put Bob Shallow's name in there, and he's not even a Christian. Yeah, but somebody might want to call him, you know. I mean, he's got a phone, you know. So it's okay. We're not saying just because you're listed there. Because, hey, this is a church with no formal membership. It's a functional membership. And whatever list we come up with kind of summarize names and numbers of people we've seen in the last few months. If you just stop coming for a couple of years, we'll assume you've either uh, moved, you're mad, or uh, you're dead or something like that. So we're not, No, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't say that, but uh, sometimes they are all three, you know, but... Uh, but yeah, the church list is just a listing of people who are associated with the church. God knows our hearts, but let's never think we can substitute religious activities for a relationship with Christ. On the other hand, if you have a dynamic relationship with Christ, a dynamic relationship with Christ, of course you're going to be involved in religious activities, quote unquote. But it's going to be real, right? All right, let's have a, a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We read this passage, it blows our mind that Jesus could walk with Judas could walk with Jesus for three years. See and hear everything he said and did, including all the miracles, and just not buy it. I think Jesus was a fallen, nice, well-intended political leader who just wasn't going to get anywhere. And yet we know him as the crucified, risen, redeemer, prophesied in the Old Testament, and the coming Lord of the universe in the second advent. So help us never to uh, assume uh, we can read people's hearts Help us never assume everybody involved in some kind of Christian event is necessarily really a believer, uh, but more importantly, help nobody in this room ever lean on their own religion, their own personal righteousness, their own goodness, their own best intentions, uh, and trust in that uh, to make them your child. You, You tell us very clearly, all have sinned, they come short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, it's through faith in Jesus we receive the free gift. And then, of course, we live it out. And if people want to call us religious, whether that's a compliment or an insult nowadays, uh, let it be. But help us to have some real discernment and uh, realistic expectations about reality around us as we read this passage. I would pray for anyone this morning who maybe has been thinking, I was a good Baptist and now I come to TBF, or I was a good Methodist and now I come to TBF or I was a good Catholic and now I come to TBF and I try to be a good person so I definitely am good I'm fine help them to repent change their mind as Hebrews says of dead works so often we wrap ourselves in the fig leaves of our own goodness and think that's going to save us When we should say Lord I'm naked and unless you clothe me I got nothing so I pray you would break uh, our, our wills and, and help us to see we need to trust in Jesus alone. He's fully sufficient to save all of us who come to faith in him, and you get the glory for all of that. Uh, and we pray that then that frees us up to live a world-class Christian life without ever noticing how wonderful we are, how much sacrifice we're giving, what we're doing, because we're doing it to Jesus' glory and out of gratitude for all he's given us, which extends beyond cancer, beyond old age, beyond all kinds of physical disappointments and problems uh, to your very presence in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name.